Friends, welcome to the new episode of Making Disciples. Now, my name is Chris Rogers and I'm your host. And the purpose behind this podcast is to try and talk about the Christian faith in such a way that we just get it. And uh, we've overcomplicated it. And in this podcast, we're aiming to try and speak so simply about the Christian faith and what it means. And in today's episode, uh, I'm not going to be talking, I'm interviewing. And this is really exciting. So, a little while ago, I got to travel to Lebanon uh, with Open Doors. And as a part of that trip, I got to meet uh, CEO of Open Doors Australia called Mike Gore. And this guy blew me away, not just because he has an incredible Australian accent, but just the way that he speaks about faith and the encounters that he has just blew me away. And he talks about Jesus in such a fresh way that I wanted you, the Making Disciples podcast listeners, to hear him and uh, just be blown away by him as well. So in this episode, uh, I get to interview Mike and I hope uh, you are as thrilled by what he has to say uh, as I am. So friends, here we go. Interview with Mike Gore, CEO of Open Doors Australia. Enjoy. Good morning, Mike Gore, CEO of Open Doors Australia. Welcome. It's very early here for me and it's late afternoon for you. Uh, but thank you so much for spending some time with us. Just tell us, how long have you worked for Open Doors? I've worked with Open Doors, Chris, now for probably seven years, but I need to just check one thing early. It's 7.30 where you are, man. It's really not that early. It's, it's, it feels early for me. <laughs> it's, it's an early morning for me. I, I want to ask you a little question. So you've been working for Open Doors for seven years. How has been surrounded by uh, stories and people from the persecuted church, how has that affected your personal discipleship? Yeah, look, it's, it's a really, it's a really personal question to tell you the truth. I think that if I'm if I'm brutally honest with myself, and therefore you, I would say that, you know, when I, I was a Christian for 30, 30 odd years, I would have called myself a Christian for thirty years before coming into this role, and then since starting with the ministry, everything, almost everything I've known about faith has been turned on its head to the point where I look back and I would say the best descriptor I could use of my relationship with Jesus was that he was a mix between Superman and Santa Claus. And, you know, people laugh when I say that, but the, the, the reality is this. I measured my proximity to God based off his provision of safety. Let me say it again. I measured my proximity to God, my closeness in relationship. Yeah. Was my spiritual life going well? All of those things off his provision of safety. So when I say that, I mean things like, was my life going well? Well, things in order. Did I have a good job? Did I have enough money? And the reality is, is the more time I spend with the persecuted church, and you and I spent some time down on the Syrian border together, mm-hmm. and were able to meet with people who I can promise you, the notion of Jesus being a superhero or superman or giving you everything you want, but calling you to nothing, for them, it's totally foreign. And so the reality is for me, I spent 30 years living as though it was almost... Jesus was at my beck and call and that he would turn up and save the day wherever, whenever, and however I needed him. And in the last seven years, I promise you, that thing has been flipped on its head uh, more than you can imagine. Yeah. That's actually an incredibly challenging thing to hear because for many, what we hear is become a Christian and everything will be fine. Become a Christian and God will bless your life and he'll make your life safe. 
that's a very different theology. So where are you getting? Where do you get that from? Yeah, look, I think one of the things I do want to uh, caveat all of the statements with is I really believe the Western Church is driven by a best intention desire to share Jesus in an appealing way. Mm. Okay, I really want to be clear. I don't think we wake up of a morning and think, how can we do the most disservice to Jesus? I think we wake up and out of our best intentions, we try and share Jesus as much as we can, but often in the most appealing way possible. And so what happens in that moment is I really believe we negate so much of the scripture because the reality is out of our genuine desire to love others and be loved, we actually leave out the bits that say, hey, you know what? It's not about getting good things from Jesus. It's about an eternity with him in heaven. And more than that, that he sent, um, God the Father sent his son to die for our sins so that we may spend eternity with him. And I think, again, it's a best intentioned effort, but so often, sadly, it misses a mark. Yeah. So what is, for you then, what is discipleship? How would you articulate discipleship? You know, I was in Central Asia recently. It's a beautiful part of the world. I love it. It's a part of the world that mixes the violence of Islamic extremism with the relentless pressure of communism. They kind of come together and collide, and it makes faith just unimaginably difficult. And I remember meeting with one brother on this trip who said to me, he got asked to go and speak in a church in Germany, and he says, I remember meeting with a believer in that church, and we're talking about Jesus, and he says, I was heartbroken because this person could only speak to me for 20 minutes about who Jesus was. And he says, I could speak to you for four hours about who Jesus was, and I could speak to you for another four about what Jesus has done in my life. He said, the simplicity of the gospel, whether it's evangelism or discipleship, is knowing who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. And he says, I'm heartbroken to think that a believer in Germany could only speak for 20 minutes on that. (laughs) I remember standing with his brother, and I thought to myself, 20 minutes? I might be able to pull off two, right? (laughs) Who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. It's the simplicity of the gospel, and I really believe it's the simplicity of the foundation to discipleship. We need to have a genuine revelation of who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. And the one thing I'd say off the back of that, for me personally, what I've come to realize is that there is a great difference, Chris, between knowing Jesus and knowing of Jesus. Mm. And I really think one of the biggest challenges I face in my personal faith as a CEO of Open Doors is do I truly know Jesus or do I only know of Jesus? And so as a team, I ask uh, all of us here in Open Doors Australia recently, we spend uh, half a day in the Scriptures once a quarter, and we usually sit with a handful of scriptures and just look, read over them, journal through them, pray through them. But this time I gave the team a challenge. I said, I want each of us to write a couple of paragraphs on who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives because it forms the basis to sharing the gospel and it's where we can stop the the encroachment of the Superman, um, Santa Claus version of Jesus coming in because as we learn the language that should surround our evangelism and our discipleship, we can become more comfortable with using it. Mm. You've said this slightly, but where do you think we've gone wrong in the Christian church? Where have we gone wrong in, in, in how we present Jesus, but also how we invite people to respond to Jesus? 
Yeah, look, it's a really, it's a really interesting question, a really difficult question. And what what it reminds me of is a story or a conversation I had again with one of my Central Asian brothers, and uh, we're standing outside this bustling cotton market. I mean, a beautiful part, mountainous region of Central Asia, and and he looked at me and he says, "Mike, what does it mean to be wise as a serpent?" And I remember I didn't really have an answer, so I sort of chose to remain silent. And and he paused and he says. Well, tell me, could the serpent hear God? And again, inadequacy and fear of getting it wrong kind of rendered me silent. And so I just stood there and, and eventually he says to me, Mike, the serpent can hear God but doesn't obey God. And with a warm and kind of genuine tone, he paused and smiled and looked at me and he says, sounds a lot like you, right? And I remember in that moment I thought, oh. He says, because, Mike, the scriptures, they talk about the sheep and the shepherd. He said the sheep hear the shepherd's voice and they obey, for they are his most valuable possession. He said the scriptures, they also talk about the 99 and the 1. Mike, have you ever thought that you might be the 1? He says, because I look at people in your country, and they claim to be in relationship with God, but the moment he asks them to do something, they don't obey. And I realize for the first time in my Christian walk, 37 years, I am the 1. I'm a tree, I'm a sheep treasured and valued by the shepherd. I hear his voice, but unless what he asks me to do is guaranteed to work, is safe and comfortable, I rarely listen. And looking back, I realize in those moments of obedience, I often mask my evangelism or my discipleship in good deeds, generosity and kindness, but without mentioning Jesus. And so in those moments, I'm essentially selling Jesus out for the hope of receiving a yes or to protect from the fear and embarrassment of a no. And the reality is, if that's what I'm doing, all I'm doing is paving the wide road to hell with generosity and good deeds. Whereas the people we meet in Central Asia, this guy tells me again that the simplicity of the gospel is being able to articulate who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. That their greatest reward is to one day see him face to face and that in their moments of obedience, they've become used to water being their pavement. Can you even begin to imagine what it must be like to be so used to stepping out of the boat that the water feels like solid ground. Mm. And so, you see, unless there is a Jesus distinctive to our language, then I truly fear that we are no better than the serpent who hears the voice of God but doesn't obey. We shouldn't be trying to avoid persecution. We should be running headlong towards it, Mm. driven by courageous obedience, knowing that wherever the gospel is being shared, persecution exists. And so coming back to you, question, I think one of the biggest challenges we face is the desire to be loved by culture. So what it does is means we avoid the persecution that we think will come, and in that moment, we sell Jesus out, and hope we yes, to protect from the fear and embarrassment of a no. Mm. All of what you've just said makes me smile, <clears throat> partly because it, it's so challenging. It's yes, come on. Um, we were in the border between Lebanon and Syria, and we, we were in that refugee camp together. And uh, it was just amazing how many people there, you know, they said that they were hopeless because of the situation they were in. But also at the same time, there was this challenge that their faith, those that had faith there, were more alive, were more in tune with Jesus and more living with Jesus and those of us that, that, were, that were coming in. And one of the things that really struck me 
was my perception is uh, we in the West are a gift to the persecuted church because we give finance and we pray. And I realised sat in uh, one of the homes of the refugees that actually they're a bigger gift to us than we are ever to them uh, because their passion for Jesus and their faith and their dedication to him and their commitment to hearing his voice and acting that out uh, was far far more driven by the love and for Jesus and the, and the commitment to surrender to him than, than, than we ever were. So um, just tell us a little bit more about how can the persecuted church be a mirror back to the Western church of what it really looks like to be dedicated and committed to Jesus? You know, I remember, I really think that persecution is the motor of the gospel. Right? If you look through the scriptures, Every instance of persecution, whether directed at Jesus or his followers, was always and only ever linked to a public profession of faith mm. or a public outworking of a life devoted to faith in Jesus. And now, more than 2,000 years on, nothing has changed. Mm. The reality mm. is that wherever the gospel is being shared, persecution exists. And so as I said a moment ago, the idea of the notion of avoiding persecution, it is fundamentally wrong. And so it's what I love about Open Doors, right? Most charities, they exist to end something. The reality is with Open Doors, by supporting us, you're prolonging persecution. But it's because persecution is biblical. And more than that, it's wherever the gospel is being shared. And so we've been doing it for more than 60 years. It's what we do best. We go to wherever people are bold and courageous enough to share the gospel. And we say, man, how can we breathe life into what you're doing? And that's where the persecuted church become a mirror. Because the beautiful thing is, is that it's not an us and them. There is a great commission, right? And it is to share Jesus with the world. And as one believer said to me from Eritrea, she spent two and a half years living in a shipping container. She said to me, Mike, Jesus Christ is a medicine of the world and he must be shared. You see, that's where they're a mirror. They're the people who say, you know what? Despite what culture's throwing at me, I realize that he is the one true God, the savior of the world. I know him, I just don't know of him, right? And so I'm gonna do everything I can to share him because walking down the street, no matter what culture throws my way, I realize that Jesus is bigger, badder, stronger, and worth more than any of it. Yeah. Yeah. I love the phrase I heard in Syria that um, in the past that said, please don't pray for us because you, you'll, get, you'll get it wrong. You'll pray for the wrong things. And, uh, you know, don't pray for us, but pray with us. Uh, and when you pray, what you mean is bless us. Um, and when you mean blessed, you mean basically mean God make their lives as safe as mine. But but the pastor saying um, no, uh, you know, pray with us because we want to be bold with our faith. We want to stand firm when persecution comes. Our prayer is that we would remain even in the face of persecution. That's what we're praying. So don't please pray for your safety. For, you know, safety for us. You know, pray that we would stand up for our faith. And I think you know lines like that just really challenged me how much of my prayer life is God protect my children God look after my family make give my family health give my wife health uh so it's all the prayer of uh safety and and of course it's not wrong to love people and want them to be well but then when you hear the prayers of the persecuted church that say no don't pray for safety we don't need safety that that's going to you know, it's in safety that we'll fall asleep. Uh, you know, we want to stay where the persecution is because it keeps us, uh, keeps us alive, for, you know, for Jesus. Uh, you know, all of that, that, 
that desire, you know, pray that we would stand firm, it just wakes me up and says, well, what is it that I want in my life? And what have they got that that they're so desperate to keep hold of that they know in my prosperity, I'm just going to fall asleep? And essentially are asleep. We are asleep. The church is sleeping because we're, we're, you know, we're wrapped up in this prosperity that keeps us in slumber. But yet the persecuted church, they've had the slumber woken and they've suddenly realised how good God is. Um, yeah, I, I would say I've seen, I've seen a lot of Christians survive persecution. Mm. I've seen very few survive prosperity. Mm. Mm. And I think, you know, even hearing you talk about prayer, well, one of the beautiful stories that comes to mind from our time down on the border was that, you know, I realized that Muslims have a greater expectation that Jesus will answer their prayer than I do. Yes. Yeah. It's the reality that the, one of the first church services that we visited down there, one of the first services is full of Muslim background believers. The second service is full of veiled women seeking Jesus. The pastor begins the service by asking the women whose prayer request did Jesus answer last week? Hands go up, testimony after testimony. The service finishes with the pastor asking the women, what are their prayer requests for Jesus this coming week? Remember, they're Muslim, mm. right? Not only do they have them ready to share, but they wake up with an expectation that Jesus will have heard and answered their prayer. And for me, it was a moment in time I realized, and I can't remember what I prayed for yesterday, let alone last week. And more than that, what have I ever woken up for with a conviction so great it drove me to look for the answer? And when these people pray, they're not asking for shiny new things. They're asking that Jesus would make himself real to them in their moment of need. And time and time again, he's answering that prayer by moving the heart of the local church, courageously obedient and unquestionably the hands and feet of Jesus to those living as Muslim refugees in their communities. You experienced it firsthand. We got to hand out some of the food packs to see how the church is working. And you know what? These people are Muslim. They are seeking Jesus, and they have a greater expectation that Jesus will answer their prayer than I do. And it's something that has changed the way I pray forever. Mm. Can, can I end with this question? Uh, if someone's watching this and desperately is saying, I want that passion that you see in the persecuted church, I want that same desire, what would you recommend? How can somebody start on that process of waking up? Yeah, look, I think that it sounds corporate, but I, re I really I really want to stress to anyone watching this is not, you need to start with the message of Open Doors, right? Because we're not a charity that exists to just be social justice, right? Brother Andrew, the guy that started our ministry, he would always go to a territory to share Jesus and while he was there, find out the needs of the local church. And again, more than 60 years on now, we are telling stories. If hopefully the stories they've heard today they like, that's the heartbeat of our ministry. And we believe caring for the persecuted church should be part of the DNA of everyone who calls themselves a Christian. But the reality is one of the most beautiful elements to the persecuted church is the way they enable courage in us as Westerners, people who hear their stories, see their tenacity, but more than that, realize that they are in a hand-holding, lockstep relationship with Jesus. And so when you read their stories, hear their testimonies, you wake up and you say, man, I want what they've got. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the brothers said to me, we look at reading the Bible as though it's walking hand in hand with God himself through the Garden of Eden. He says, Mike, when was the last time you read the Bible when you weren't preparing a sermon? <laughs> how, Chris, how can you hear those things and not go, man, I need that, I want that, because you know what? There is a massive difference mm -hmm. between 
knowing Jesus and knowing of Jesus, and I'm terrified that I'm in the latter. I expect you to give me that answer, Uh, but I totally agree with you. I I have no, uh, I don't work for Open Doors. Uh, I have many friends who do, but, you know, I'm just a pastor of a church trying to help people be discipled. And I think if I look back on the last 10 years of my faith development, the first period of time was theological education, reading the Bible for the first time, a lot of it. But this last 10 years has been the persecuted church has discipled me more than anything else. And when I start hearing those simple stories 10 years ago, and then as you start hearing the stories from North Korea, and then in the recent years, uh, working with Open Doors uh, through Spring Harvest, you know, fundraising for the work in Syria, it's that, it's the faith of the church in the face of suffering that has discipled me the most, because it makes me say, where am I placing my life? Um, Is it somewhere that I want it to be? Or is it somewhere that Jesus wants it to be? And the truth of it, you know, eight years ago, when Becky and I moved to East London, it was because every time we opened up the scripture, we found a Jesus that goes to the abandoned place and the people on the edge, uh, and people that um, were neglected by the religious institutions. And, um, and I, I, you know, for me, Open Doors has been the di- one of the key disciples that's been been saying to me, so Chris, how serious do you take Jesus? How serious do you take Jesus? So I think one of the things for me is that, you know, the world watch list and, and praying for brothers and sisters globally who are daily living in suffering, uh, for me, has really woken me up to, well, if I'm praying for them, what, are they praying for me? Are they, what, what would their pray back be? And... Um, yeah, so you know, I would say a similar thing. Get to the Open Doors website, whatever country you're in, get to it, and start getting the mailings and start watching the videos and listening to the stories, uh, because they will shake you up. You know, I really, I really believe that an exposure to the persecuted church should be a prerequisite for anyone who claims to be in Christian leadership. But, but as an encouragement to you, you know, knowing a bit of your story and knowing the obedience that you've had to um, change locations and want to win cities. You know, I want to encourage you, man. I think you are doing an amazing job for the gospel. It's an exciting thing to hear of all of the stuff you're involved in. I think Spring Harvest, you know, from Open Doors perspective and all of the conferences and churches that support us in the UK, thank you from us mm-hmm. to them. And more than that, if you want to get a speaker for your church, if you want in the US watching this, Australia, UK, wherever it is, reach out because we can come and share these stories. Mm-hmm. And I really believe the message of the persecuted church it has the ability to change the spiritual temperature of a church in a heartbeat. Mm. And, you know, you mentioned about um, one of the, the things that I love, and we can finish with this if you want. I remember walking across a refugee camp in Iraq. It was you know, ISIS had just torn the place up. There was people arriving on foot left, right, and center. And I remember we are in this camp of about 5,500 people, and whenever you're in those places, you've always got to be mindful of what's going on around you. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw someone walking towards me with real purpose and I thought to myself, all right, I better get ready. Whatever's going to happen, I just need to be aware and ready to move if I need to. Anyway, this guy got up in my face and started to talk to me and he said to me, hey, I hear you're from Australia. I said, yeah, I am. And he says, I want you to know our church, we pray for you. And I'm like, what? Don't put that on me. And he starts 
talking in broken English about you know this this thing. And anyway, we ran we land on the Lint Cafe siege in Sydney, Australia, from a few years ago. And he says, "Look, when that happened, our church we stopped and we prayed for you." And I remember he went on to talk about. It. He said, "Look, the challenge in the West." You look at the body of Christ as arms, legs, fingers, and toes. He said, we look at it as blood, bones, muscle, and skin. He says, the bones are like the Catholics. They're rigid and you can't move them, but you take them away from the body and it falls to the ground. And he says to me and Mike, when they're dying over here at the hands of ISIS, they're not dying because they don't deny Mary. They're dying because they don't deny Jesus. Mm. He says, the muscles, you like this one. The muscles, they're like the Anglicans. Mm -hmm. They're a little bit rigid, but you can move them a little bit. And he says, the blood, they're like the Pentecostals, the charismatic, free-flowing, always changing. But he says, you take away any one of those elements, and the body can't stand. And he says, they're like a body fighting off wound or infection. Blood flow increases, muscles contract, and other parts of that body rush to that area to protect it. He said to me, right now the body of Christ in Iraq is hurting, and we are rushing to protect it. And I realize for the first time again I'm in the body, but I wasn't in the fight. And so my passion now is to speak to people like you and your listeners and say, you know what? The persecuted church, it needs to be part and parcel of your expression of faith. It doesn't need to be 100%, but I believe every single person watching this broadcast should be doing something every year for the survival of the church. So if you can, call us, get your churches on board, donate monthly. Giving's the easiest thing you can do because I promise praying's a lot harder and I would love to encourage people support the survival of the church because wherever the gospel is being shared, persecution exists. Mike, thank you. Thank you so much. And it's such a privilege to talk to you. And Skype, what a gift that we can communicate from hey. across the world like this. Thank you so much and bless you. You too, man. Thanks so much for having me and let's hope we can do this again sometime. Great stuff. <laughs>